0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: In a world of historically unprecedented abundance, there are so many who don't have enough to eat. Life-limiting obesity coexists with malnutrition at the same time, sometimes in the very same place. Food is the complex and critical subject that we'll talk about today with Joseph Gittler, who works to address the issue at the local and national level. Hello, and welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem Series on Ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host. Back in 2003, Joseph Gittler was moved to act when he saw significant food waste in Israel at a time of rising poverty. He founded the nonprofit organization, Leket, that has since become the largest food rescue organization in the country. Joseph Gittler, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Let's begin with some definitions. Uh, What's the difference between hunger and food insecurity?
0: So I think the definition is important. And interestingly, in Israel, in the Hebrew language, uh, there really is no differentiation. There's just one word, and that complicates the matters for us sometime. But when I think of the word hunger and nutritional insecurity, hunger to me leads to poor countries, countries that don't have enough food to feed their populace, countries going through unimaginable hardship. Uh, Nutritional insecurity, and that could lead to starvation. And and unfortunately we are seeing that, which is something I thought we wouldn't see anymore uh, in our generation or ever in the history of the world. Nutritional insecurity is more a term that I think that applies to Western countries where people will not starve to death, they'll generally have enough to feed their bellies, mostly, but they're making difficult decisions with limited incomes in, with a high cost of living. And often that decision-making leads to either skipping meals or more likely uh, buying the wrong food because we live with this strange paradox in the West that food, which is actually more processed, has used more energy, taken more time to manufacture, actually costs more, costs less, excuse me, than food that's gone through no processing. And so what happens often is that the poor um, need to buy in order to keep their stomachs full, processed food, which is less healthy and packs less nutritional punch. So again, I think nutritional security for Western countries, like the state of Israel, hunger, starvation, more for countries that are really, really struggling uh, and have populations living on, on almost no money, if any money at all. I, I was
1: astonished to learn that as much as a third to 40% of all the food produced is wasted. How, how does that happen?
0: So, uh, well, how does it happen? I know it gets left to rot in the fields. It rots in people's refrigerators, on their tables, in storehouses of manufacturers. The, the The bigger question, of course, is is why. So, I always like to start out by saying that first we need to understand that any manufacturing business, right, any production business, is going to have waste. Okay, it doesn't matter what you make. You're never going to sell everything. And so right off the bat, we understand that there's going to be a certain amount of food waste. And that's just part and parcel of any business cycle. Nothing's perfect. We don't know exactly what, um, you know, what the populace is going to want. And different things get popular at different times. You know, just think about in Israel, you know, the, the farmers of 20 years ago, as an example, were producing little bits of mango, little bits of avocado, And so many farmers have changed because of changes in consumer tastes. So that's number one. Number two, unlike many other manufactured items, um, we need food. Like you don't need 20 shirts in your closet. You might buy 20 shirts in your closet, but you don't need it. And so food production, food security, on an Israeli level and on a, a, a world level we always have to produce more than we need because we're scared. We're scared of war. We're scared of acts of God. We're scared of global warming. We're scared of fire. We're scared of drought. And so, again, not, we don't need to just produce too much food because we're not. We don't know exactly what people are going to buy. We need to do it because we're worried about the world starving. And so, when everything goes right, as it has, you know, certainly in our lifetimes, um, it just means that there's going to be. 10 15 20% too much and that's going to go to waste and that's why the lekts of the world exist. Then you have scenarios like now where you have Russia invading Ukraine and that's you know that's put the whole worldwide food market in in a tizzy because Ukraine and Russia produce and export huge amounts of our grains and our oils and so prices have spiked. Uh, Israel as an example, um, normally exports in the winter months Tens of thousands of tons of vegetables to Russia that all dried up this year for a whole variety of reasons. Um, And so everything changes very quickly. So what I'm saying in a very long winded way is just and then there's the cultural reason. Bounty and abundance and expectations and modern food practices and the fact that if a tomato doesn't look right, it never makes it to market. It might get sent from, for manufacturing, but even then, there's still a lot left over. So all these things come together to produce uh, this scenario where there's just massive amounts of food. And of course, when we talk about 30 to 40% of the food getting wasted, let's not forget those countries which have real hunger, where they're doing very little of the wasting. They really need the food. Like the poor in Israel let's be frank, are still in a far better situation than the poor of many other countries. You don't want to be poor, but you're not going to starve here. And in countries where they really don't have enough food, many of them in South America, Africa, especially Southeast Asia, their people can literally starve to death because of the way food is manufactured and distributed. So we need to get our act together a lot better, especially now we're really hearing of horror stories in many countries throughout the world.
1: And in Western countries, where you're right, it's the problem is milder <laughs> than it is in, in the countries you just mentioned, where starvation is a real threat, it, is there a pattern to food insecurity beyond uh, income? It, does it also have to do with where you live, urban, rural communities, or is everything just a question of whether you can afford to buy healthy food.
0: So I think Israel is Israel because it's such a small country and kind of urban is rural. It's all mixed together. We're a little bit different, you know, in the, in the U S there's certainly, let's use the U S as an example. That's from, from originally, you know, there's a lot of urban uh, poverty historically and you much more so than rural poverty, except in certain parts of the country. In Israel, um, in general, the more rural areas are often, you know, the kibbutzim, the moshavim. The people there, they may not be poor, but they have enough to eat, certainly. Um, and here we see more urban poverty, I think. And yes, it's like, I mean, everything's about money at the end of the day. You know, I always say to Leket supporters, like they say, so what does Leket need? What are you missing? I say, and I always say, I hate to say it's always about money, but it's always about money. We know what we're doing. If we had more money, we could do more of it, and I think the same goes here. That being said, there are, there are reasons. A lot, some of them are historical. You know, you have population groups which are poor for historical reasons, decisions that were made decades ago by by Israeli leaders, by their leaders. Um, you have immigrant groups which have language issues, which have education issues, and Israel's a miracle. I mean, the fact you know that we're part of the OECD, uh, the fact that um, In general, most Israelis live pretty well, despite the complaints. um, It's not bad to live in Israel relative to most other countries in the world. Um, But we do see a lot of historical poverty, generational poverty. um, And most of that is tied to uh, opportunity, I would say, and income. And of course, income comes from opportunity. And that's why a lot of what LECA does is to try to provide food to agencies who don't just fill bellies, but are trying to get people out of the situation. They're in a lot of after school clubs for kids where the food is important. It's important to feed bellies. It's important to provide nutrition. It's a hook. It gets the kids into these programs. But really, those programs exist to educate these kids, keep them off the street and give them a path towards um. Self-sufficiency and making enough money to survive in this country. Now that is not easy here. It's not easy. Um, despite being startup- nation and despite the increases in salaries and the pressure on the low end of the wage scale, uh, it's still hard for people to keep up because the cost of living here has risen so dramatically. I'm here 22 years. Just in the last year, just came out yesterday, the cost of living not the cost of living, sorry, the cost of housing rose in Israel just in the last year by 17%. How can anyone keep up with that unless you happen to be fortunate enough to have already purchased or have a long-term rental agreement? But if you're a young couple just starting out your life, the cost of housing went up 17% in a year. It's unimaginable. How am I ever going to purchase my own home? And frankly, how am I even going to rent something somewhere close to where the jobs are?
1: Yes, that, that's a that's another major problem. It's uh, it's shocking, um, but uh, it, it, now when you talk about poverty and uh, and its role, of course, it, poverty is relative until you get down to the starvation level, and most people don't think about their situation compared to. Uh, someone malnourished who can't feed their babies in Somalia. You tend to look around your own society and say, how am I relative to everybody else? Uh, But but when you became aware of food nutritional insecurity or the waste here, how did you take the next step to go from what most people do, which say, um, you know, ain't it awful, to acting and founding it
0: No, so certainly until I started Leket, I was like everyone else, trying to do my part, volunteer here and there, donate money when possible. Uh, but I think, you know, this this whole mix of, of Zionism and making Aliyah and a little naivete about You know, Israel being different than every other country, which, you know, really isn't. We liked it. We are in some ways and we aren't in other ways. You know, those things were kind of the hammer blow for me. You know, when I started to hear about the poverty and see the poverty and read about it. And for me, really, when I put those two together saying, you know, doesn't seem that there's an organization dealing with certain aspects of food waste. And yet there's so many wonderful organizations taking care of the poor. And this is so commonplace from where I came from in New York City, City Harvest, and the New York Food Bank, and all over the United States, agencies that rescue food and redistribute it uh, have existed for decades. So really, I did two things once I decided I wanted to um, look into this issue. So the first was I did my homework. And I did that by visiting nonprofit organizations throughout the state of Israel and trying to assess what their needs were besides just money, and when I suggested to them that we could maybe provide food rescued from farms or caterers or hotels free of charge, all of them said, oh, we would love to do that ourselves. But of course, we're focused on the battered woman, the Holocaust survivor, the youth at risk, the families that need help. But it would be great if someone else organized a project like that and delivered directly to us. So that was, you know, one kind of kick in the seat of the pants. And the other was uh, other two, I would say, steps I took. um, One visited agencies in Israel doing this in a small way, but with a different focus. And when I would say to them, well, what about cooked food? And what about refrigerated dairy items? And what about farming? They said to me all wonderful things, but we're just busy with what we do now. But, you know, God bless you. Go ahead and, and take care of it. And so that was number two, meaning, and that's always a lesson. In the business world, you know, you can, it's risky, but go for it. Challenge someone else, undercut them, produce a better product than them. But I think in the charity world, we should always be very, very careful before we start something anew. Um, And I have conversations like that with people all the time who come to me for advice. And that is just be certain that what you have doesn't exist or that there isn't someone in this area who maybe you should be partnering with because they have all the pieces in place and you could bring a new piece to them. So when these organizations said to me, you know, we're just not going to do that. So that was step number two. Step number three was I took a trip. And actually, I went to Toronto, where my wife is from, and I spent a week with uh, Second Harvest Toronto, which is a, a food rescue organization, and just learned from them, spent times on their trucks, met, met with their staff, visited NGOs, sat in their board meeting. And the beauty of the charity world, it's very sharing, very open. There's no secrets. I certainly wasn't competing with them in Toronto. You know, at the end, the favor they asked me is, you know, can you help connect it to some of the Jewish philanthropists in town? We're not getting much money from the Jewish community. So, you know, tried to help with that. So those are really the steps, homework, homework, homework. And then, you know, I came back with a head of steam and started to call up caterers who do events. And the responsiveness was very positive. When I called and said, can I pick up your excess food? No one said to me, risk of legal liability. No one said to me, tax deductions they said we waste so much food we've been waiting for something like this we can't wait for your first pickup we were so excited and that you know again what's more exciting than when you call 100 caterers and say you want to pick up their excess food and 99 out of them say you know come tonight that was my biggest problem is too many said yes right away and um You know, that's why within a month or two of doing this on my own, I needed to bring in volunteers. I needed to get our first refrigerated truck because it took off so, so quickly. And the amounts of food were so copious. And the agencies that we decided to work with originally near where I live, Ranana, Kfarsaba, Hetzaliyah, we'd expand the circle very, very quickly because the amounts of food coming in were so, um, so large, so quickly.
1: So in it, so you started with food rescue, taking it from caterers, restaurants, and farms. Now you have expanded. You prepare food for the elderly. You partner with academic research organizations, and you also consult to other countries. Why did you branch out into those things, especially the research? Okay, so
0: look, my first response to that is that. Um, of what LECA does is still core. And that's because we're still only even as big as we are today. We'll distribute probably about 75 million pounds of food this year. It's massive for a charity. It's pittance. It's still a pittance relative to the problem. So our board pretty much keeps us on the straight and narrow. And when you hear about some of the items you mentioned, Everything's connected and everything has a reason. So let's start with the soups and then I'll then I'll tell then I'll talk about the research a little bit. You know, soups, the reason we're making soups primarily for the elderly is because we've noticed as we've doubled in size over the last few years that we're able to distribute 95, 97% of what comes in, but with certain crops, carrots, beets, onions, potatoes, tomatoes, we get left with a few tons here and a few tons there. Now in the larger scheme, that's a very small amount of what we're doing. But, you know, if every month I'm left with 20, 30 tons, that's still a lot. And so in order not for let get to waste, we try to come up with a way to extend the shelf life of those crops. And the, the, the best thing we came up with for now was to uh, make soups out of them. We're not making them ourselves, although that will be what that's the plan for a year or two down the line to have our own kitchen and volunteers coming in and preparing and making the soups. Uh, But for now it's outsourced, frozen in half liters and distributed to homebound elderly through our network of agency partners. So we did it not because we suddenly decided we're gonna be food manufacturers, but because we had a problem that needed solving and we didn't want to waste. And I'll add to that, that what's happening now is now we'll take stuff that's even lower quality than we used to accept, because it's quality that's good enough for making soup. So we've almost, I like to say, we've reached the apex of gleaning. Like we're at the, we're at the top of the mountain now because there's, we're taking the worst of the worst. And, and that makes me very proud. When you talk about academic research, so, so um, you know, we, we need to show, again, everyone knows when you're providing healthy, nutritious food to people, that's what they need to eat. Like, I don't need any professor to come and give me a study about that. Okay, we all know that. There've been a billion and one studies about that type of um, you know, impact of the right quality food. I mean, our whole diets should and are based on that, especially those of us who, who are fortunate to be able to buy quality food and, and are educated and understand. But of course, um, there's, there are funders out there who wanna see that kind of impact. Uh, there are professors looking for areas to study. And, you know, because Leckett is providing high-quality, healthy food to the poor, so it's very easy for us to guide uh, people in that direction. So we've had, you know, uh, Professor Troen, who I, I'm sure you know, we have a very close relationship with, has done some work uh, with Leckett, And I think also as an organization, it puts you on a certain level, a pedestal, um, and we're trying, we wanna be a leader. You know, when the newspapers um, at the beginning of the year, when they're concerned about poverty around Rosh Hashanah time or kids starting school, you know, we want them to you know, call, that let, let should be one of those organizations uh, that they call. So whether we need academic studies or not, um, there's a kind of a self-interest for us as an organization. And we wanna be, it's, you know, we wanna be uh, the talking heads because everything comes together at the end of the day. When people see how serious we are, then when they see that we participate in these studies, when they see our annual food waste report, which is a very heavy duty report that's prepared by us together with BDO, in partnership with the Ministry of the Environment, um, it puts us on a certain level where we wanna be as an organization. I'll I'll give another example. Um, We just a month ago did uh, what we call Let Get Live, which is a mission for supporters and potential supporters where for two days, we go very deep into our work. We travel the country, we meet with recipients, we meet with uh, politicians, we meet with food donors, we meet with financial supporters, very intense. Um, And again, a it's it's great for us. It's a great way for our supporters to get to know the organization better, but it's also part of it is also, I, I, it's important for me, not, not for me personally, but it's important for me that when people think about Lekka, they say, oh yeah, just like Hebrew University or the Van Leer Institute, I'm sure has lots of conferences like that. Lekka also, we're, we're on the same, you know, we're, we're in that um, rarefied uh, air of organizations that do those kind of things. That's important for me and uh, important for our board. And, and many of our supporters want to see us um, as a serious shop, not just logistically and not just feeding the poor, but also, you know, in academic type of circles.
1: Uh, Yes, and to bring in uh, social and political correctness kind of issues, food and its preparation and its waste was once a domestic kitchen, um, pardon the expression, women's issue, and therefore insignificant when you elevate it into a, something worthy of academic research and concern, it makes it more serious, more, more credible. It puts a, a three-piece suit on what once only wore an apron. So <laughs> I think it's a great idea.
0: Nicely, nicely said. <laughs>
1: uh, food rescue may be a term that not everyone is familiar with it, although gleaning has a very, very long history. Tell us a little bit about the history of cleaning, what it means, and where it comes from.
0: Sure, you got it. So, I, I would say there's two main areas where we see it in in, in the Bible. Um, so, first off, you had, I'll say them in Hebrew and then I'll translate into English, you had three commandments, leket, shikha, upea, which were commandments on the farmers of ancient times and how they needed to treat the poor. So I'm sure a lot of the listeners remember, you know, leaving a corner of your field, which of course, importantly, needed to be accessible to the poor. It couldn't be 10 miles out of town when they had no way to get there. Um, Crops that fell off the back of the wagons, having to leave that in your field for the poor to collect. So those were the ancient commandments, which of course we've modernized, because again, as we talked about in the beginning of the interview, Modern food practices and how we view food automatically leads to waste. We don't need to ask farmers to follow these biblical precepts; they're just doing it automatically. You know, maybe they're not. Maybe that's not. They're not their intent, but you know, for my purposes, that doesn't really make much of a difference. So that's the first area where it comes from, and those are those are laws that are actually, um, you know, not don't exist actually anymore in Jewish practice. They're only um, in existence when there's a temple. So, you know, I always say I have this special, um, I have this special kind of honor to bring back a biblical precept, which doesn't technically exist, but certainly the spirit of what we're doing is exactly what the Bible intended. And then, of course, if we want to think about a a story or a personality, we have the book of Ruth, uh, where Ruth, uh, you know, goes through terrible tragedy and comes back to, you know, the land of Israel and she's poor. And she's gleaning in the fields in order to, um, uh, she has the right to, uh, biblically, to gather excess crops from the field. And of course, not only is she able to feed herself and feed her mother-in-law, but she also finds a husband in the fields. And by the way, Leckett has done multiple singles events in the fields over the years. um, (laughs) Because it's a great way for people to meet each other and do a... Charitable act and have a good time, and um, so those are really the areas where we see it biblically. And thankfully, you know, you know, Leket is probably the leading gleaning organization in the world when it comes to fruits and vegetables. But thankfully, because of information sharing, because of publicity, because we have visitors, as you mentioned before, from overseas who've come to learn from us, um, we're seeing more and more of that. In fact. One of our most recent visitors was from the Ghanaian Food Bank. And we just got a message from him yesterday that they did their first glean with a church and they gleaned one and a half tons of oranges uh, that were grade B that probably would have got, gotten uh, just, you know, been left in the fields. And now those are feeding poor people there. So it's such a nice uh, light onto the nations type of moment for us as, or, as an organization.
1: And uh, since we're talking about um, in- international, congratulations on getting Ghana on board. Uh, let's talk a little bit. I know, I know, your real work is here in Israel, uh, and we hope to have a guest who deals with the, the uh, global food issue. Uh, but, but share with us your thoughts about that. Uh, especially in light of the use of food as a weapon in conflicts from Ukraine and Ethiopia and Yemen, other places. What, how do you see it from your point of view?
0: Right. So uh, from our point of view, you know, the best use of our time and resources, I would say two things. So first of all, in Chicago sits an organization called the, Glo- the Global Food Bank Network, We are the Israeli members of that. That organization exists primarily to consult with, educate, and fund food banks in poorer countries. Israel, Australia, Canada, countries like that are on it, less in order to get those services, but more to be the educators. And so, for example, Ghana, Kenya, Philippines, which all joined this Leket Live mission we had, came through the Global Food Bank, who chose three uh, of their partner agencies to come and learn uh, from us. Independently, we also get, outside of the Global Food Bank, we also get uh, emails and calls. So, for example, through the Israeli embassy in Panama, last week I had a Zoom with... some folks there who are doing Leket type of work. And again, every constituency is different. Every country is different, what they grow, how they grow, how their food system is set up. But there's always commonalities where we can learn one from the other. And so, you know, we spent an hour on the phone talking about what they do and, and, and the complications. And, you know, Israel, really, we have it easy. Um, you know, Normally, I don't think of it as a positive that it's such a small country because we're small and our weather's the right kind of weather and we're clever and our farmers are clever um, and we're rich. So, you know, we have it easy in that way um, when it comes to food rescue and distribution. Some of these other countries are very large, mountainous, poorer, um, you know, they might be very cold, they might be very warm. Oops, okay, sorry. (laughs) I thought my computer shut off for a minute. and so it's just much where we really are on easy street. And part of that is, is why we've been so successful in that sense. And so, you know, I view our job as, you know, just to help where we can. If someone asks us, can you send a leket employee to us? You no, know, we'll do it. It's like, we're, we're, that's part of our, our role. It's not, and you said it correctly, it's not our main role. Our main role is finding food and feeding the poor in Israel. But we're happy to help with, with information sharing as much as possible. You know, we're except when it comes to our own issues in Israel that we advocate for, where it impacts us or impacts poverty or food insecurity in Israel, we're really apolitical. So, of course, you know, I'm horrified by the use of food as a weapon and people starving for no good reason. Again, no one in this planet needs to be starving. That's what's so sad about it. Now, in the Western countries, we can feed people high quality, nutritious food. And that's why Lekin only deals in that type of food, because why would I need to uh, deal in giving people junk? Um, And that's why I I always tell supporters, um, you know, if I get offered 100,000 cans of cola, I have no problem with people giving a poor person a can of cola. It's nice, right? I also drink that stuff once in a while, but I'm not going to spend your money sending a truck to pick up cola they can deliver it straight to the agencies i wouldn't even pick up bottled water because open the tap israel's drinking water is safe and healthy and cheap again relative to moving so but when it comes to poor countries um you know that may not be the case but there is enough food to feed all of them and you know i'm not a political leader and i don't have any power you know, and what russia has done in ukraine is, is is a horror and of course they, they're war criminals and you know they'll probably get away with it because that's the way the world works but you know we as a society we need to talk out about it and we in israel need to do our part even though we're small and we're still poor relative to a lot of the really rich countries in the world we need to do our little part of helping and we have We have international aid agencies that do their part, and Israel as a country does send support. And certainly the Jewish people um, and Israeli people um, give a lot of philanthropy all around the world to help that. But probably most important is our voice and um, pushing our governments wherever we are to to send that aid where needed, to not be cheap. No one should be starving in, in, in this day and age with the logistics we have in place, with the amount of food we're, 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 um, we're making. And of course, part of that is everyone being responsible in their own home. You know, I grew up in the 80s and I grew up in one of those houses. And my mother would say to me, Finish your plate, there's starving people in Africa. And you'd look like, What, is, what does one have to do with the other? But of course, everything's part of one system. And if I'm wasting food in my house, that's food that maybe wouldn't have been purchased maybe never would have been bought and could have been donated to someone who needed it. So it's far off. And when we don't see it, sometimes we don't feel it, but that's the way we need to think about it. And that's why 50% of food waste still takes place in people's homes. And that's money thrown out. You know, you don't care about the poor. You don't care about, you know, Africa. Just think about your own pocket. Okay. (laughs) And so that's like, by the way, that's sometimes the best way to get people to quit smoking because they think they're going to be the one in the million who doesn't get sick from smoking. So you just do the math. You could have bought an apartment on the beach with how much money you spent smoking. <laughs> Maybe that'll help you quit. I know that's not that effective either, but you, know, you got to try. You got to try different methods because most methods don't work. So, And I see it everywhere. The, lek- the lek- of the world haven't changed practice enough. We've created organizations which deal with um the problem which continues unabated, unnecessarily, but we haven't changed behaviors, I would say. You know, the next step, maybe not for us, for government, for educators, like we changed water practices in people's homes or picking wildflowers, if you remember those campaigns, you know that's kind of the next step, but that's much bigger you know, then let it. And part of it is economic. Part of it is people caring. Um, and especially at a time where food has become more expensive, inflation is hitting people's bottom line. Think about what you're buying when you go to shop. Don't just be a sucker. Don't throw away food. Go to the supermarket more than once. The same way we tell people, go to the buffet at the hotel more than once, so they'll run out of croissants. So you won't get 10 croissants because that's what we see people doing. They pile up their tables with food and then half of it goes to waste because it's so difficult to get up another time. And, and there's just so much of that still in society. And hopefully, you know, some people who hear this podcast will change your behavior.
1: I really admire you, Joseph. You're doing <laughs> vital you. work and helping others to participate with you. I, I think it doesn't get better than that. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, tell us about uh, some of your newest innovative ideas. Uh, the one I came across is recognizing a role for children, besides finishing everything on their plates because children are starving in Africa. Uh, you you have the idea of using children as change agents. Tell us how that would work.
0: So... um. I think what you're referring to is, is twofold. Um, A, what I just mentioned before, which is, you know, how did we change the, I always remember I'll give you, I always remember my son, who's now 20, just started serving in the Israeli army. And, you know, maybe he was in first grade or second grade and I, he was in the shower and I hear the shower going on and I hear the shower going off and I hear the shower going on and, and I'm, I walk in and I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, we learned in school that, you know, get your body wet, turn off the water, put on your shampoo, put on your soap, then turn on the water again, it saves water, okay? And so we understand, like, you pick your issue, that educating children about food waste, the same way we're seeing, like, the next generation, already this, like, the kids who are in their teens and 20s and 30s now, they've heard so much about global warming and environmental issues, that those are the biggest change agents they're the ones making the change and so educating kids about the place of food waste in environmental terms feeding the poor economics in people's own homes so part of that is you know so that's one area that we're using kids to try to change the way uh, business happens and in, in, in people's homes and in the business world in addition uh, we're using kids and educating them about nutrition, cooking. We have a couple of pilots out there in schools, especially in low income areas where we're trying to get people to stretch their budgets more to eat healthier. Um, so we're we're in schools where we're teaching kids all those types of skills. And part of it also is that you have immigrant groups coming from countries where they don't recognize certain um, certain fruits or vegetables. And so, we need to um, we need to educate them on that, and so um, so for example, um, you know we always had a story in Lecket where years ago we brought eggplants to Ethiopians and they literally didn't know what it was. They'd never seen an eggplant in their life, and again, no one's starving in this country. So if you if you're given an eggplant, you don't know what it is. You cut it open, it looks kind of silly. What am I going to do with it? how I'm going to eat it? But you can change people's behaviors. You can educate them. They 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 understand how to use it. They understand how to cook it. And so we're doing more and more work in that area. I call it a side project. Our core mission is still to just feed people um, healthy, nutritious food that's going to waste. But again, if you deliver stuff and people don't know what to do with it, they're not going to utilize it either. And so part of that is educating single mothers. And we do a lot of work with the Ethiopians. And we do a lot of work with ultra-Orthodox mothers you know i don't want to sound sexist but you know the apron is still there and the primary people coming to these uh, nutritional courses are still mothers and women um but but we try to include their children uh when we can and so that'll hopefully bring on some of the change that we need because we need people to understand how to utilize these crops i don't want to rescue them and distribute them to people who aren't then going to eat them? That would be a real shame.
1: Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Joseph.
0: Thank you very much for this opportunity, and I wish everyone a wonderful day. And of course, take a look at our website, www.leket.org. Www.leket, and anyone who wants to be in touch with me, joseph at leket.org.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Balak Pasikov.